You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Last Sunday, I had the privilege of kicking off this series. We looked at, we read and reflected on the first four verses. And if you were here last week, you may recall this. If you weren't, the first four verses of Luke's gospel are the preface. Before Luke begins the story of how Jesus came to earth, he he tells the recipient of this gospel a man by the name of Theophilus, why he wrote this down. And he tells them all the painstaking measures he went through to be able to deliver this accurate account of Jesus. This morning, we are now beginning the story. If last week was the preface, today the story begins. We're going to be in chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 25. What we're going to see this morning is how Luke connects the Old Testament story with the story of Jesus. How do you begin the story of Jesus? Well, we have four Gospels, and they begin differently. But Luke says, I I just can't begin with the birth of Christ or even the announcement of his birth. He begins somewhere else, but he's doing it to connect the Old Testament to the New Testament. So let us Read this together. Church, this is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a great priest, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray together. Father, would you open up our eyes to see what you would have us to see? And give us spiritual ears to hear your voice speaking through your word and through this message this morning. And Lord, would you transform our lives as we encounter you through the preaching of your word. And may you use this time to strengthen your church, to save the lost, and to bring glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine for a moment living in your homeland. But your homeland is now occupied by another nation. And that nation that rules over you, they tax you as people in ways that are unjust and unfair. They require you to submit to their laws and yet you have no voice and no vote. There's actually an emperor in charge, and he is seen as a god. As a people, in your homeland, you're allowed to practice some of your cultural and religious customs. For example, you can still worship your tribal deity or deities. You have freedom to worship according to your religion. Many of your kinsmen, they still participate in religious exercises like offering sacrifices, following certain dietary laws, praying in the temple, and celebrating certain religious holidays. However, most of your kinsmen do this out of duty. Not because, they do it out of duty because of their ethnic identity. It's what we do. It's who we are. They don't do it out of devotion to God. And the temple, the temple you go and you worship in, it isn't the original temple your forefathers used to worship in. The temple 
that used to be the pride of the people. That, that temple was destroyed hundreds of years before you were born. Another nation came in and destroyed and, and that temple and did sacrilegious things in that temple. As a people, you're still allowed to have your own tribal and religious courts. And you're even permitted to have your own king. Here's what you need to know about this king who's currently on the throne. Not only is he a foreigner placed there by this other nation. He's actually an egomaniac who only cares about his reputation. He's actually been known to kill family members who he believes are disloyal. And church, don't, don't even get these started on the religious leaders of your faith. If you were living in this time, most of the religious leaders are corrupt. They're hypocrites. They're power hungry. They love to put on a show that makes them look pious and devout, but they're not fooling anyone. They're not. Do you know what the most difficult aspect about this time in which you live is? The God whom you've worshipped since childhood. The God you've heard stories of deliverance that God appears to be silent. The many promises, the many, many promises he's made to you as his people all appeared to be unfulfilled and forgotten. Actually, for 400 years, he has been silent. Not a prophet, not a new message. 400 years of promises unfulfilled and not a word from him. Church, this is the setting in which we find this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, living out their faith. This is the context of this story that we just read and that we are going to reflect on this morning. The story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and their son John here in chapter 1 verses 5 through 25. They, they're meant to show us that God preserves his people. He multiplies his people. And he fulfills his promises to his people. So what we're going to discover in this passage this morning, God preserves his people, he multiplies his people, and he fulfills his promises to his people. So let's go back through again, and let's think through the details of this story and how they apply to our lives today. Let's, let's look at verses 5 through 7 again. Before we hear about this significant event that took place between Zechariah and this angel in the temple Luke sets up the story in these first three verses. Look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. 
the narrative of Luke begins in the same way, no surprise, that, that all stories do. We are told when these events occurred, during the reign of King Herod. And once we know when the story took place, Luke immediately introduces us to this priest by the name of Zechariah. And then we meet his wife, Elizabeth, and we hear that she is a descendant of Aaron, the high priest among the people of God during the time of Moses. And then in verse 6, Luke tells us this about this couple. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. In other words, this is a godly couple. Now, don't be thrown off by the words righteous and blameless. Luke is in no way communicating about them that they're perfect, that they're without sin. What he's doing here is he's contrasting them with so many others in Israel. These are a people who cared about godliness during a time of great compromise. Why call them righteous and blameless in the commandments and statutes? Well, you would say that if most of their counterparts, their neighbors, the people who are going to the temple with them, are just putting on a show and could care less about the glory of God. You point at a couple like that and say, they're not like that. That's what Luke's doing here. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they sought to be faithful during a time when many had probably given up on their faith or their faith was just a matter of going through the motions. Listen, Luke's description of this couple in verse 6, it's quite remarkable. How so? Because they represent the faithful remnant who continue to wait in hopes that God will fulfill his promises. We can just move right past verses 5 through 7 is just introductory to get to the, okay, what really happened in the temple? But do you know what this couple represent? They represent the faithful remnant, the few and the faithful who are continuing to put their trust in God, to wait on God in hopes that God will fulfill his promises. They're not the last group of remnants we're going to hear about from Luke. We will meet more in the days ahead. I can honestly say that in the past, I've grown up in the church, I have read this story and heard it read so many times. But I can say, up until this week, I did not appreciate or admire this couple the way I do now. I just saw their names, a little bit about their background, and just thought, that's background information to get us to the story. The more I reflected on the times in which they were living, and the way in which Luke draws attention to them, have great appreciation and admiration for this couple. And before Luke tells us what happened that day, he tells us one more thing, verse 7. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and both, were advanced 
in years. Now, upon hearing this detail about their barrenness as a couple, you know what should happen in our minds if we're thinking about how Luke is connecting the story of Jesus to the story of the Old Testament? You know what should immediately come to mind? We should be reminded of the pattern we see all throughout the Old Testament involving barren couples. Abraham and Sarah. Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob and Rachel, who all gave birth to the patriarchs of Israel. What about Manoah, the mother of Samson? Or Hannah, the mother of Samuel? All these were barren women who eventually gave birth to a son because the Lord miraculously granted them that gift. See, the barrenness of Elizabeth isn't just some background information. The barrenness of Elizabeth, it carries on this familiar pattern in Scripture, listen, that communicates a significant theological point. Have you ever thought why the patriarchs, why each one of them, their wives were unable to have a child? Until God granted them the ability to have a son? Why, why is that a, a common theme in these scriptures? And, and why is that now going to be a theme as Luke tells us about how Jesus is coming to earth? Well, it actually communicates an important theological point, And it's this. The people of God are created by God, not by human initiative. And that he alone will fulfill his promises. You remember the story of Abraham and Sarah? When they were promised the son who from him God would build a nation. And years and years and years and years go by. And what do they do? Well, God must need our help. So we'll have a son through Hagar. And not only did that not go well. The Lord eventually gave them the son of promise. God was saying, I don't need your help keeping my promises. I will build a nation and I will do it on my own. I will build a people and I will do it on my own. Hearing that this couple was barren, but still pursuing the Lord, it does something else. Not only does it communicate a theological point. Not only does it connect this story with the Old Testament story. You know, what, you know what this story does? By immediately reading in verse 7 that they were barren and unable to have a child, it models for us what faith looks like when God postpones or denies our desires. See, this is where my admiration for this couple even grows more. Not only were they living in difficult times spiritually, not only were they living in different, difficult times politically, they're living in difficult times personally. For years and years and years and years, they've just said to this God, who has not fulfilled any of his promises to his people, who has remained silent, God, could you just give us a, a child? And it seems like for years, God has put his fingers in his ears, and yet they keep Asking. Eventually, God answered their prayers. 
And not only did he answer their prayers, he's going to answer the prayers of Israel. But get this, he's going to do so in a way they could have never imagined. He's going to use their family to bring spiritual renewal to the family of God. Spiritual renewal is coming to the people of God during this time. And God's going to use this faithful couple and their prayers and their patience and their example. How, how amazing is that? Now, before we move on to the heart of this story, what happened with Zechariah in the temple, I think there's some things we can take away from these first three verses and the example of this couple. Let me give, give a few points of encouragement to us all. Once again, think about when this story is taking place. Think about all that's going on. Here's the first thing. Don't let what's happening on the world stage dictate to us what God is doing in the world. At this time, the Roman Empire is ruling over Israel. And at this time, there is a puppet king named Herod the Great, who we will hear more about later. And if you want to hear how evil he is, go to Matthew chapter 2. Historically, from the writings of men like Josephus, we know that he had wives killed, sons killed, other people killed, anytime he suspected anyone wasn't on his team. That's the environment that this couple is living in. And how easy it would have been for them to look around at Israel and Rome and Herod and think, God's not doing anything in the world. Friends, don't let the world news tell you what God is doing in the world. God's purposes and plans cannot be thwarted. And God often weighs works in unsuspected places among unsuspected people like this little faithful couple. I think there's one more point of application that comes from this. Don't invest too much confidence or express too much alarm over the persons who occupy the palace of a nation. Don't put too much confidence in who's on the throne. Who's in the palace. Because if you're just looking at the palace, you're, if you're Zachariah and Elizabeth, you're like, man, how in the world could God be at work when we've got Herod in the palace? So don't put your confidence in who's in the palace or grow too alarmed over who's in the palace, or in our context, the White House. Listen, they cannot thwart the plan of God among his people. They cannot. They will not. And we need to be reminded of that, church. God does not work in great ways like that. Throughout the history of redemption, God is often working 
among the faithful and the few among the people of God. Among you and among me. They may never write a biography about our lives. But our faithfulness is making a greater difference in this world. Than people who serve in the UN. Thank God for them. Or senators and presidents. Our faithfulness in our community. God uses. Let's not forget that. Now that brings us to. The story Luke wants to tell us. This incredible event that happened in the following way. In verses 8 through 10, Luke tells us, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside, At the hour of incense. Zechariah, we are told, on this day, was given the distinct privilege of offering incense during the hour of prayer that took place two times a day, each day, in the temple. Now, in order to understand why this is significant, Most priests, it is estimated, were afforded this opportunity to actually go into the holy place and offer incense probably one time in their entire life. And Zechariah got the opportunity to serve. Listen to this. Because the lot fell on him. He was randomly chosen. The dice happen to just fall on his name. And he just happens to be the guy that gets to go in that day. See, church, not only is God working among the nations. And the nations can't thwart his plan. And not only is God working in politics and beyond politics. God is working in providence. What seems like, well, it just happened. God is at work. We're told then in verses 11 through 12 what happened on that day. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Now, put yourself in his place for a moment. A once-in-a-life opportunity. You're honored to have this privilege as a priest, but most likely, knowing that Zechariah is a godly man, he's not just going through the motions, he realizes God is holy. So he's already probably walking in with a degree of trepidation. One time in his life, he will get to go beyond the courts everybody can go into, into the holy place. And offer prayers for a people that are sinful. So he knows that God is holy and his role as a priest is sacred. 
And why the priests would do this, why they were called to offer incense during the hour of prayer, it was meant to communicate something to the people of God. As the smoke went up in the temple, that that was meant to represent their prayers. And the reason that the priests offered the incense, it was to tell the people, your prayers cannot be heard apart from a mediator. You are sinful. God is not obligated to answer your prayers. You don't deserve for your prayers to be answered. But God is gracious enough to hear your prayers and answer your prayers through a mediator. And that day, Zechariah got to be the mediator. And all of the sudden, here you are, you are putting these incense into this big pot with, with coals. And you go to put some in and you look up and there is a messenger of God. Don't think naked little baby with wings. This is, this is a heavenly being. No one was thinking, oh, how sweet, how cute, an angel. He sees this being and he is Troubled. That's what Luke tells us. That's the understatement of the day. He was troubled. He was filled with fear. And he had every reason to be alarmed. Oh, but listen to what the angel says to him in verse 13. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayers have been heard. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. There stands this messenger from heaven, with the best news. Zechariah. This God you've been praying to. Hasn't had his ears closed. Not only has he heard you. He's going to answer. Your long awaited prayer. And that's not all he says. Verse 14 and you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. Not only will you be glad, but his birth will bring many joy. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. That means he's being set apart. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And then verses 16 and 17 tell us why. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. God answered the prayers of Zechariah 
and the prayers of his people in ways they did not expect. This announcement that day was an announcement of good news. Actually, it's exceptional news. This son, whose name would be John, he will be set apart for God to do the work of God in bringing spiritual renewal to the children of God by calling people to repentance. That's John's role. He is going to bring spiritual renewal to the children of God by calling them to repentance. Look at verses 16 and 17 when it says, He will turn their hearts. That's the word repentance. That's what repentance means. To turn. It didn't just say He will change their behavior. He will turn their hearts. Revival will take place in Israel. Now, in a few weeks... We're going to reflect on greater detail who John was and on his unique ministry when he is born. So I will not this morning try to explain all the references about him in this passage because we'll come back to it. I'm not going to take time to explain the particular role he will play in redemptive history except this. His most important role that's mentioned at the end of verse 17. He is to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Prepared for what? Prepared for the coming of the Messiah. Little, little did everyone know that morning when they got up to go to the temple and pray as they had before so many times. Little did they know in Israel that day that those who had been faithfully praying to God that he would answer their prayer. God would redeem his people. He will fulfill his every promise he has made by sending the long-awaited Messiah. God was answering the prayers of his people. The seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.16, he's coming. The suffering servant prophesied by Isaiah 500 years before. The prophet that says this, this anointed one, he will unite all of Israel and he will bring the nations to himself. He's on his way. God is answering his people. And John, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, will get to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Now before moving on, one thing we must not miss in this section. And that's the important role prayer plays in this story. Zechariah was praying. And the people were praying. And it reminds us that God works through prayer and he hears the prayers of his people. Now, it should come as no surprise that Luke would highlight the role of prayer. If you do not know this already, you're going to see this unfold time and time again. Luke was a man who cared deeply about prayer. Why do I say this? Because if you compare Luke to the other two synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark, he highlights the role of prayer far more and in ways that the other writers will tell you Jesus did this and they'll leave out the part about him praying. And Luke time and time and time again will say before this happened, Jesus prayed. He will give more parables and more teaching on prayer. And not only does he do this in the Gospel of Luke, he does it in volume two, Acts. We still see a people praying. 
and God answering the prayers of his people. See, church, listen, prayer is the privilege of God's people. Prayer is the privilege of God's people. And we're going to learn a lot about prayer as we make our way through the gospel of Luke. But the most significant truth we will see highlighted again and again and again is that God answers the prayers of his people. And I highlight that this morning in this text. Because how easy it would be to forget that God answers the prayers of his people when it appears that he hasn't for so long. Let's not so quickly rejoice in, in the words of the angel when he says, God's heard your prayer. Think about how many years they've been praying this prayer. Think about how many years Israel has been praying, God, when will you fulfill your promises to your people? It's easy to pray when everything is going right. When the world is all as it should be, do we still say, blessed be your name? Sure. But what about when the road is marked with suffering and doubt? See, that's what happens when God appears to not answer our prayers. We, we can doubt God and we can doubt the effectiveness of prayer. And sometimes we can be tempted towards unbelief. Not when God only delays answering our prayers, but he answers them in ways we never expected. And that's what we see in the next part of this story. Beginning in verse 18. After hearing this message, you would think Zechariah would leap for joy. It said, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now let's be fair to this man this morning. Put yourself in his place. Humanly speaking, this message from the angel seems impossible and absurd. Here's a man who's been praying all these years, and God finally says, I've answered your prayers. I'm going to give you a son. Uh, Lord, uh, I don't think you know my story. That's not possible. Aren't we just like that? See, Zachariah's res response, though we can relate, let's, let's call it what it is. It's unbelief. It's unbelief. The angel is going to call it unbelief. And maybe you can relate this morning. Have you ever had this thought? If only God would send an angel, then I would believe. <laughs> Exhibit A, Zechariah. If only God would do a miracle. Do you know why we find it so hard to believe and so easy to doubt? It's because belief, unbelief comes natural to us, not faith. That's why we find it so easy to doubt. It comes so natural to us. 
It's hard at times to believe and trust God, not because faith is irrational, not because there's not enough evidence. It's because unbelief is natural to us. We don't have to wake up in the morning with a distrusting disposition. We live in a world full of cynicism and distrust. We don't trust anyone, including God. We have to fight against that for faith. Listen then what the angel says to Zechariah in light of his moment of unbelief. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, if you're like me, as I said earlier, I, I grew up reading this passage. And one of the things that's always perplexed me is why is Zechariah struck mute by God? What's the significance of this moment? Outside of letting us all know, including Zechariah, that wasn't the right answer. <laughs> When God tells you he's going to do something, say, yes, sir. Do not say, well, how can that be? But you know what? There's far more to what's going on here. There's far more than just a sign of disobedience. And the fact that Zechariah cannot talk, this is also a sign of mercy. I've never seen that before until this week. This is not just a sign of disobedience. This is a sign of God's mercy. How so? In two ways. Think about what Zechariah just asked in verse 18. God, can you give me a sign? Now think about what God just did. When the angel said, you won't be able to talk until the baby is born. And all of a sudden, he couldn't open up his mouth. God, you have shown me that you will do what you've said you will do. That was a personal sign to Zechariah. It wasn't just punitive. It was a moment of mercy. This is a sign that the promise will be fulfilled. Isn't that what the angel says at the end of verse 20? There's that word fulfillment. God says, through this angel, Zechariah, you're having trouble believing I will do this. How hard is it for me to do this? You won't talk again until your wife bears that sign. And here's where it's another expression of God's mercy. And I had never seen this before. Keep this in mind. Once John was born. And Zechariah's mouth was opened again. And he began to proclaim to all that his son was not like any other kid in the neighborhood. Why could he do that? Because everybody remembered how he was mute. Imagine had he come out of the temple and said, Oh, guess what happened in there? My boy is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. We, we've all 
seen those parents, maybe we've been those parents that, my kid gets straight A's at so-and-so middle school. I mean, this is, this is John Say, I mean, or this is Zachariah going out. How absurd could that sound? And if you think this is just speculation, skip ahead to when John is born and Zachariah's mouth is open and all the people say, there's something about this guy. Zachariah just opened his mouth. And Zachariah said, oh yeah, let me tell you. My mouth is finally open and let me tell you who he is. And nobody says, what a wonderful expression of the mercy of God. In this story, Zechariah needs to, or Luke needs to close out what happened here. And he tells us, verses 21 through 23, And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Luke closes out this story by telling us these details. And then he comes back to where he began. The story could have just ended here. But notice how the story began with the barrenness of this couple. And it ends with these words, verses 24 through 25. After this, these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This passage ends with Luke informing us that Elizabeth became pregnant. And therefore, her years of barrenness were over. And notice verse 25, the quotation marks. What does she do? She praises the Lord for his mercy. Now the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and John, they're actually symbolic. There's a greater reason that Luke tells us this than just to let us know, how, well, how did John, the forerunner of Jesus, get here? Well, I've got to go back to the story and tell you the story. Luke is doing a number of things here. And one of the things he's doing here is telling us the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and John. It's symbolic. You see, her barrenness represented Israel's barrenness at this time. Why can I say that? Because you know how many times the prophets... Of old said things like this, Isaiah 54, 1. Sing, O barren woman, speaking of Israel. Sing, O barren woman, who do not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Do you see what God is doing? God didn't just answer the prayer of Elizabeth. God was answering the prayers of his people. Not only is her barrenness over, the barrenness of his people has come to an end. See, when the Lord answered Elizabeth's prayer for a child, he in turn answered Israel's prayer by sending them this child. 
See, John wasn't simply a gift just to her and to Zechariah. He was a gift to his people. Their barren year, spiritually speaking, had come to an end. God was providing for his people what they needed most. And you know what they needed most? It wasn't just that the 400 years of silence would be over. You know what they needed most? They needed for the promises of God to be fulfilled. And that would happen when the one greater than John is born. And that's going to happen when the perfect priest, unlike Zechariah, arrives who can save and intercede for his people perfectly and completely. Next week, we will reflect on the birth announcements of Jesus to a young lady named Mary. And there we're going to discover how our only hope to be right with God will require God to come to us in the form of a man to save us from our sins. Praise God for his word and his revelation to us this morning. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how kind of you to preserve this story in Holy Scripture so that this morning you could encourage our hearts. So many years later, we have this story to remind us where this week we have forgotten that the world news does not determine what you're doing in the world. God, we needed this passage this morning so that when we grow weary this week praying the prayers that it appears you still haven't answered, we will not grow weary, but we will keep being like the woman who kept knocking on the door, waiting, hoping, trusting. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, may you, may you, Preserve us as a people and help us to be faithful in this culture that we live in as we point people to the Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.